The rest of us this morning are going to be talking about the sovereignty of God. And we're going to pick this up from last week, this short little mini two-week series. If you're new this morning, you weren't here last week, don't worry. I'll review rather quickly, but I will review nevertheless. But we are going to talk about the sovereignty of God this morning during our study of God's Word. And I want to give you a couple of reasons why we're going to do that. One reason is simply this. I love to talk about the sovereignty of God. Let's just be honest. I'm being very honest. Given, given the opportunity to talk, about, to talk about just about anything, this ranks right up there with some of the other real high points. I love to talk about the sovereignty of God, and, and I love having this opportunity. So before we uh, pick up and we, we end the summer and we get back to our study of Matthew, well, I wanted to do one more topical series, and it was this one because I love to talk about it. But it's not just because I love to talk about it. It's because you should love to talk about it too. We should all love to talk about it, not just preachers, not just pastors of a certain theological stripe or whatever it may be. We should all love the reality of God's sovereignty because really we're just talking about who God is. We're talking about, if you will, the godness of God. And I know that sounds pretty strange, pretty odd, the godness of God. Well, I like to say it that way because we say God so often and so flippantly that we say God and we don't really think about what that means. So I say the godness of God. When we talk about God, we're talking about the supreme being. Supreme, that assumes He's above. That assumes He's greater. We're talking about His his greatness. We're talking about His power, His supremacy, that He is above, that He is beyond, that He is the King of kings and He's the Lord of lords. And how in the world can we do what we're supposed to do on planet earth as Christians, how in the world can we glorify God? Remember, the Bible tells us whether we eat, drink, or whatever we do, work, play, you fill in the blanks, do all to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10.31. That right there, in a sense, is a call for us to think, talk, boast, preach about the sovereignty of God. To glorify God is to magnify God. It is to make much of Him. It is to put His grandeur and His, 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 His power and His, all of His attributes on display and to be impressed with Him. Well, that's to glorify God. And when you talk about the sovereignty of God, you're talking about His supremacy and His grandeur and His glory and His might. And so, that's my first reason. <laughs> first reason we're going to talk about the sovereignty of God is because I love to talk about it and I want you to love to talk about it too. Because we're really just bragging about how great God is and how different God is from us. That leads me to another reason and then we'll move ahead. Another reason why as a pastor I really feel burdened to, to exhort you if need be, encourage you if need be, remind you if need be, certainly remind myself that in a certain sense we need to recover our commitment to our understanding of the sovereignty of God. When was the last time you did a study of the sovereignty of God? When was the last time you had a conversation about the sovereignty of God? When was the last time you heard a sermon about the sovereignty of God? Do you know what the sovereignty of God is? Too many times I'm afraid that we don't like to talk about the godness of God. Because, in effect, even though we would never say it, we're too busy consumed with the godness of self and the sovereignty of Pat. Because I'm big, and I'm above, and I'm in charge, and I'm free to do whatever I would like to do. That's sovereignty, the sovereignty of Pat, the sovereignty of self. There's a passage in the Bible that... that reminds me of this kind of attitude that I have and we struggle with. It's Psalm chapter 50, and it's one of the most haunting chapters or verses that I know in the Bible in my own personal life and in ministry. It really troubles me. Psalm 50, verse 21. I'll ask you to go ahead and turn there. Talking about the sovereignty of God because we should, because how do we glorify God if we don't even know who He is and we don't even know He's sovereign? He's the King. He's above And it seems like we don't do a very good job. That's the second motivation or reason of emphasizing the sovereignty of God. And we seem to emphasize the sovereignty of self. We seem to look at God as if He were one of us. This isn't a new problem. Look at Psalm 50, verse 21. 
These things you have done, the wrong things in this case, and I kept silence. But here's really what I want you to notice. Verse 21, God says, you thought I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. That's really troubling to me. You see, God has a problem with me thinking about Him as if He were like me. Think about that. So what are we doing? We're doing our best to return to God's revelation of Himself. We started last time in Genesis. We're really looking at the Old Testament, the New Testament, and we're being reminded of what God says about Himself. We're being reminded that we shouldn't think about God as if He were one of us. We're being reminded that God is very, very, very different from us. He's the King. I'm not. And that's supposed to be a good thing. It's the right thing. And that's what should fuel my praise. It should cause us to want to have a God-centered ministry, not a man-centered ministry. It should cause us to really think differently, act differently, Worship differently. Remember, Jesus is the one who reiterated from the Old Testament, the greatest commandment is what? Is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. All of your strength is His ideas. It's all of you. It's the greatest thing we can do, which is another way of saying glorifying God. But that assumes that we know who this God is. That assumes that we don't think of Him as if He were like us. It assumes that you believe in the supremacy, the sovereignty, the superiority of God. And so I'm hoping and praying you will just be impressed anew with how great God is and how He is on a different level than you are, a different level than I am, and He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is in charge. He is free to do whatever He wants because He's God. And it will cause you to want to submit to Him and cause you to want to worship Him and give Him thanks and praise. Fair enough? You motivated? That was the introduction. All right, now, by way of review, let me review quickly. And again, I don't want to just re-preach the sermon. It's on iTunes. It's on the website. You could, you could be brought up to speed on this if you would like. But we looked at a definition of the sovereignty of God, which isn't authoritative because it's written in a book by a human being. But taking the biblical data together, I'm reading from uh, the Moody Handbook of Theology, a good, simple definition with reference to God. It means that God is the supreme ruler and authority that He ordains whatever comes to pass, and that His divine purpose is always accomplished. I think that's a good definition. You notice a couple of key strains in that kind of definition, gathering the biblical data together, that He has the power to do what He wants, He has the freedom to do what He wants, that He's in charge, He ordains, but He has power, He has freedom. In that power, He's superior. In that freedom, He is superior. Even Webster talks about superior power, supreme excellence, freedom from external control. He's God. He does what He wants. Then we looked at a number of different passages. You don't need to take the time to jot these down, but we looked at passages that said things like, you can do all things. Passages that said things like, His sovereignty rules over all. Said things like, He does whatever He pleases. Passages that said things like, whatever the Lord pleases, He does. Pretty impressive. If God were not God and those things were said about Him and by Him, I would have a problem with Him. Wouldn't you? But if God is God, remember we're talking about the Godness of God, this is a good thing. This is right. This is beautiful because we're talking about the one true God. Then we moved on to talk about the sovereignty of God demonstrated. And we looked at all different ways or all different areas or spheres in which God demonstrates His sovereign reign, His sovereign rule, His authority, His freedom to do whatever He wants to do. We saw the sovereignty of God demonstrated in the physical world. We saw the sovereignty of God demonstrated in the angelic realm. 
including the demonic realm. We saw the sovereignty of God demonstrated in the animal realm. Not even a sparrow falls from the sky apart from the decree of God. We saw the sovereignty of God demonstrated in national affairs. God raises up authorities. God brings down authorities. God is in charge, Daniel 2.21. We saw the sovereignty of God demonstrated in human affairs. That's why we're supposed to say things like, if the Lord wills, we're acknowledging the sovereignty of God. James chapter 4. We saw the sovereignty of God demonstrated in coincidence. Wink, wink. Luck. We saw it demonstrated there in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap. It's every decision is of the Lord. We saw His sovereignty demonstrated in His amazing care for His children. Romans 8. We ended on such a rich and, and great text. God causes all things, the good and the bad, to work together for the good of those who love Him and for the good of those who are called according to His purpose. I love the sovereignty of God. I love it. No, scratch that. I love the God who is sovereign. And you should too. Well, let's plow some new ground this morning in our study of God's Word. I'm so glad we get to do this. Let's look now and turn a corner a bit having left on such a, just a rich and refreshing, the sovereignty of God demonstrated in His love for His children. We ended on that. And now we're going to turn a corner and we're going to look at something that's a bit more controversial. But I really couldn't do a series on the sovereignty of God and ignore this. Now we're going to talk about the sovereignty of God demonstrated in sinful human acts. Sinful human acts. I could ignore this, but I wouldn't be a very good pastor. I wouldn't be trying to to put my arms around the whole counsel of God, which is what I'm supposed to do. I wouldn't do a very good job of answering those questions that were coming up in your mind perhaps last time when we were just so overwhelmed with passage after passage. He's sovereign over all, sovereign over all, sovereign over all. But pastor, bad things happen. They do happen. Let's look at some texts and then we'll see how we might mesh these two together and to see how they complement each other. If you turn to Genesis chapter 45, you'll see a a classic example of God working and, and even working and being in charge, overseeing His creation, even in its fallen state. And you see He is bringing about good even through sinful human acts. And, and I already said this last time, but I have to reiterate lest you've forgotten. This might feel a little bit like a theology classroom to you. And I'm, if it does, I'm really glad. Okay? Good. Because our theology, we're all theologians, by the way, because we all have an understanding of God. What we believe about God, how we understand God, our theology, if you will, directly affects not only the way we think, and the way we act, but really how we handle ourselves, how we handle life. If you live very much longer at all, you're going to face difficulties and you're going to face the effects of a fallen world. You know the most practical thing that you can have in your toolboxes for life? You can understand and comprehend theology Specifically, in this case, how God is causing all things to work together for good, right? That's how you're going to get through the tough stuff of life. And so I I, I try not to give you five ways to quickly deal with all problems in life or, you know, whatever it may be. Practical is helping us all to think more biblically so that we can deal with life. Thanks for letting me give you that little mini-sermon. Genesis 45, verse 4, Then Joseph said to his brothers, You know the account well, if you're familiar with the Bible at all. Please come closer to me. And they came closer, and he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, which would have caused them to perhaps do the unmentionable. (laughs) They would freak out. What? Whom you sold in Egypt. What do you think? Is that sinful for them to do? Absolutely, that was sinful for them to do. It was wrong for them to do. Verse 5, Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me. Was that wrong? Yes. Are they morally accountable? Yes, they did it. They sold him. But do notice what it goes on to say in verse 5, For God sent me before you to preserve life. 
Ah! Who's ultimately in charge? God is ultimately in charge to accomplish a greater good. So He used fallen sinful human beings who want to do fallen sinful things to ultimately accomplish His purpose, which is a better purpose even through Joseph. We see the same kind of thing being stated in verse 7. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Verse 8, Now therefore, it is not you who sent me here, but God. But you know what? They did. But they didn't. God is superintending above all of it to accomplish His purposes. This is a God who can be trusted. This is a God who, when He says He works all things together for good, you can believe Him. Here's a historical example of it. Absolutely. Who would want a God who couldn't do this? I wouldn't. How about Genesis 50, since you're close there? Genesis chapter 50, it's relating to similar matters. I wrote in my Bible in the passage where we just were in Genesis 45, in the margin, see Genesis 50. And in Genesis 50, it says in the margin, see Genesis 45, or Genesis 45. I have a horrible memory, but I might as well write in my Bible. (laughs) It helps me. Look what it says in verse 17 of Genesis 50. Thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive me, I beg you, the transgression, that's another word for sin, of your brothers and their sin... For they did you wrong. Okay, I underlined their sin. And then I drew an arrow down to verse 20. As for you, remember we're talking about their sin, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Their sin, God superintends, means for good. That's profound. That's, that's praiseworthy. That's acknowledging the sovereignty of God even over sinful human actions. That's practical. Because I can look at any event, even though I might not know how God is going to use it in the end, I can look at anything that happens and know as a Christian if I have a working, functioning Christian worldview that is filled with the data of Scripture. can't do it if I'm biblically illiterate. I can look at anything and say, I don't know how this is going to work out, and I don't know how, but I do know that God is causing all things to work together for good. I can praise God as a result. I can encourage myself as a result. I can encourage you. You can encourage me. Isn't this good? I feel like we should stop and sing a song. Like one of the, one of the songs we sang, just about how God is great and He's above us. This is, this is the stuff that worship is made of. But that's not the best example in the Bible. You know the best example in the Bible of God superintending over. You know the best example of God working over, sovereignly controlling sinful human actions. What is it? I'll give you a big hint. Right? It's behind me. It's the cross. If you turn to Acts chapter 2, you'll see it. In Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4. And you already know because we've already talked about it, but... I do like to ask people who have a problem with this and who say, I don't really think that's true. I say, well, what's the worst sin anyone's ever committed, ever, since the history of mankind? What, what, what is the worst thing? And eventually you can help them come to the right answer if they don't know it right away. The, the murder of Jesus. The, the crucifixion. The, the horrendous death to the point where Isaiah says he was marred more than any man. The grotesque, violent, horrific execution of the God-man, Jesus Christ. That's the worst sin that's ever been committed. I don't know anybody who would object to that who is any kind of, uh, has any kind of connection to Christianity. Why did it happen? Oh, bad luck? Well, that's blasphemous. I hate to even say it. Let's look at Acts chapter 2. This is, this is really profound. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This man... It's talking about Jesus, based upon the verses before, delivered over. You in Acts 2.23? I send you somewhere else? I didn't send you there? Acts 2.23. 
For those of you kids who are taking notes and you're not really engaging on taking notes, you have things from your parents like write down how many times he says sovereignty. How many are we up to? Let me give you some more. Sovereign, 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 sovereign. If you didn't start that, you can start right now and see how many times I still say it. Anyway, sovereign, sovereign. Said it a couple more times. All right, Acts chapter 2, 23. This man, talking about Christ, delivered over, how? By the predetermined, that, that has sovereignty written all over it. He's in charge. He determines things even before they happen. By the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you, the sinners, nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Notice they are morally responsible for what they did, but do notice certainly that it happened according to the predetermined plan of God, right? And all you have to do is read the Old Testament and read all the the Messianic prophecies that would talk about this. And you will be saying to yourself, oh, that makes sense. Jesus went to the cross because it talked about it in the Old Testament and that's what ultimately had to happen. This, this, This makes sense. God is overseeing all of this. Acts chapter 4, since we're there, and then we better get back on on track and get things moving. But Acts chapter 4, we see a similar kind of idea, similar reality. Acts 4.27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Notice, did did you see? You anointed to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Yeah, God is sovereign. He's in charge. He's even in charge over sinful human actions. Now, I have to use great self-control and figure out how I'm going to do this quickly. But there's a big question that comes up. I know we've only gotten one point done today, but just bear with me if you would. There's a huge question that comes up, and I just want to to go down that road just for a couple of minutes. The question is, and some of you are probably asking it, if God is sovereign over everything, absolutely everything, from the very beginning, does that make God the author of sin? I'm so glad you asked that question. You are a bunch of really profound thinkers. I know some of you were thinking of it, as a matter of fact. I think that's a good question to ask. In fact, I think if you're not asking that question, you're not taking into account the biblical data that we've seen over and over and over and over again, that He is sovereign. Nothing that happens happens apart from His will. You need to be asking that question. In fact, if you're not asking the question, I don't think you've quite got the message that nothing happens apart from God's decree from the very beginning. Well, it gets controversial then because this is a big question for us to be dealing with. I have a little paper I wrote on the issue here and I'm not going to take the time to read it lest we all have a yawning fest. I try not to just stand here and read things to you. But if nothing else, let me get you thinking about these matters. If you ask me the question, is God the author of sin, I'm going to say, no! Resoundingly. I think you should too. Christians throughout the ages have said, no, he's not! Because of passages like Psalm 5-4 that says, no evil dwells with you. There's no evil in God. God's not the author of sin. And I will go to the wall for that, and I think you should too. But I won't, therefore, conclude God is not totally sovereign over everything. If you take all the biblical data together, here's what you're going to conclude, I think. I'm not making this up. Other theologians talk about this very thing. God is not the author of sin. Passages like Psalm 5-4. He's holy, inherently so. God is totally sovereign and nothing happens apart from His decree. And then I have to say, it's a mystery exactly how it works. Now, if you don't think it's a mystery and you've got it figured out, 
I think you're lying. <laughs> I, just, I don't think we can. Now, our tendency as a culture is to go one way or the other. And right now, the tendency is to, within evangelicalism, he is not the author of sin, and therefore he's not sovereign. Don't make the other mistake, though, and say, he is so sovereign that he is the author of sin. Just leave it alone. Totally sovereign. Nothing happens apart from his, his decree. Not the author of sin. Because remember, remember, Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established His throne in the heavens and he, His sovereignty rules over all sovereignty. Psalm 115, 3, but our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Psalm 135, 6, whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. Ephesians 1, 11, who works all things. How about this? After the counsel of his will, nothing happens apart from the counsel of God's will. So did the fall happen by accident? I don't think so. In fact, I would suggest with great strength, I'll say the fall didn't happen by accident. Because remember, the cross was set out as God's perfect plan of redemption, Acts 2, Acts 4, before time ever even began. So if there, there, there is a plan of redemption before time begins, certainly there's a plan for sin. You know, I had a, a Bible, one of my teachers and when I went to graduate school, and, and he realized there was a fine line to walk here, and I admired him for doing that. He would say, you know, uh, I believe that God uh, actively allowed the fall. And I also believe that He passively decreed it. And we'd say, what are you talking about? And he's saying, I'm just trying to make a point that you just have to leave the data alone and be good with it. Now, we, we're, I'm telling you way more than perhaps you want to know, but again, if you're not asking the question, then why do bad things happen in this world if God is totally sovereign? Then I don't think you're thinking quite deep enough. So I'm just going to try to leave the two alone. And somehow, the fall didn't happen by accident. Somehow God would get more glory by having a people that needed to be redeemed by His great Son than if He were to do it a different way. Let me end this little rant and tangent with a couple of good and profound quotations, not from a philosopher, not even from someone who specializes in theology or systematics. Really, this person specializes in what scholars call exegesis, dealing with the data of the text. It's from a book called How Long, O Lord? To put it bluntly, God stands behind evil in such a way that not even evil takes place outside of the bounds of His sovereignty. Man, He can say it a lot better than I can, but that's what I've been saying. Yet, the evil is not morally chargeable to Him. It is always chargeable to secondary agents, to secondary causes. And theologians have been saying it that way. You read an old confession, and they've been saying it that way for a long time. He goes on to say, and this gives people a little bit of a black eye, but I like the way he does it. Notice I'm quoting someone else to give people a black eye so I don't have to do it. Some theologians, let's just say Christians or theologians, some theologians are shocked by and express bitter reproach against other theologians who speak of God causing evil in any sense. At one level, they are to be applauded. Everywhere, the Bible maintains the unfailing goodness of God. On the other hand, if you again scan the text, it must be admitted that the biblical writers are rather bolder in their use of language than the timid theologians. I.e., if you want a translator on that, sometimes we theologians are so timid and scared that we don't even say what the Bible actually says. We don't want to be that way. Remember last time we looked at that text? If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Now, responsibly, we want to talk about what that means and what it doesn't mean and look at all of Scripture and same way with the cross. But let's let God speak for Himself and let's be impressed with His sovereignty that He is so great and His plan is so magnificent that He even is in charge of, control over, through secondary agents, okay, sin. And the cross is a testimony of that. 
I'm so glad someone asked the question so I could go off on that tangent. How many points have we done? One. Well, let's return. The demonstration of the sovereignty of God in all of these different ways. How about just a couple more? How about the sovereignty of God demonstrated in salvation? If you turn to Ephesians chapter 1, you'll see the sovereignty of God demonstrated in salvation. That God is free. God is free to save the way He wants to save. If God wanted to save everyone who would ever even been born, He could do that and it would be good and right. Why? Because He's sovereign. If God wanted to save no one, nobody, It would be good and right because He's sovereign. He's God. We're talking about the godness of God. What He does defines right and wrong. If He chooses to save one person, if He chooses to save countless people from our eyes, which is what the book of Revelation talks about, it's right, it's good. Who am I to argue? Ephesians 1.11. Also, in Ephesians 1.11, we have obtained an inheritance. I mean, Paul is, dare I say, like a giddy schoolgirl. No, that's probably not a very good thing to say. He's excited, though. He's enthusiastic. That's why he starts with, Blessed be the God and Father. He's praising God for this, according to 1.3. And then in 1.11, also having obtained an inheritance. He's thrilled by this. How, well, how did that happen? Because he was so smart and he exercised his own freedom? No. Having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. I'm standing before you as a saved individual having this great inheritance. Well, ultimately, God gets the credit and, and it goes back to Him because God is the one who works all things after the counsel of His will. And Paul didn't have a problem with that because Paul also knew chapter 2 and chapter 2 says we're all dead in trespasses and sins. He didn't have a beef with God doing it this way. First of all, because he understood the sovereignty of God, but also certainly he understood he didn't even deserve to have any inheritance. We're, we're such in the mode that we want to make the sovereignty of God in salvation and the sovereignty of God in everything else all about controversy. Paul didn't think it was controversial. He thought it was praiseworthy. Right? That's exactly what he thought. That's chapter 1. The sovereignty of God in salvation. If you turn over to Romans chapter 8, you see also the sovereignty of God and salvation. He's in charge. He rules over it. He does it the way He wants to do it. It's according to His plan, not according to our plan. He does it the way He wants to do it. And again, be careful about having a problem with the way He wants to do it. For It says in Romans 8.29, For those whom He foreknew or foreloved, He never uses that word in relationship to seeing circumstances unfold. That's always people. It's personal. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren, and those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom he called he also justified, and these whom he justified he also glorified. The reason I use that as a text to talk about the sovereignty of God, notice it's all God's doing. It's all by God's unmerited favor. He is sovereign doing it the way he wants to do it. And when I have a problem with the way God wants to do it, I'm just showing the godness of Pat, the sovereignty of Pat. Uh, the sovereignty of God here. You don't need to take the time to go there, but I'm having way too much fun talking about this because I trust it's the right thing to talk about because it's elevating God even though it's humbling me. In Acts chapter 13, verse 48, we see the sovereignty of God because the people go there, the believers go there, and they preach the gospel, and they preach the gospel to the people there. And what happens in Acts 13, 48? As many as had been appointed unto eternal life by the sovereign God believed. Aha! God is sovereign. That's Dr. Luke's testimony of the sovereignty of God. We saw God working there. And as many as had been appointed unto eternal life, they believed. Oh, God is sovereign in salvation. How about the next one? God is sovereign in sanctification or spiritual growth. Not only is God in charge of it, He does it the way He wants to do it according to His plan for salvation. He does the same thing for our spiritual development, our spiritual growth. He's overseeing it. He's in charge of it. Even in that very text, because in Romans 8, you have at the very end glorified... That's as good as heaven, folks. When you're glorified, you see Christ, you're made like Him. And it starts way back with four new predestined. Huh? It's the whole deal. 
from before time begins to after time as we know it, God is working in somebody's heart to the point where they're going to become glorified. Well, if I read my Bible right, nobody gets glorified without being sanctified. That's spiritual growth. He's in charge of that too. He's in charge of that too. How about Philippians 1.6? He, God, who began a good work in you, the believer, will be faithful to perfect it. When God starts a work in somebody's life, He'll be faithful to perfect it. That's God being in charge. He's the one who's perfecting. Isn't that good? It's great. This isn't to say that I don't have to exert effort. This isn't to say that I'm not supposed to work out my salvation with fear and trembling, which is a call to be sanctified. Philippians chapter 2. Absolutely. But the very next verse in Philippians 2 says, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And I just leave Him alone. I've got to work really hard to act like I'm supposed to act as a Christian. Not to get to heaven because I'm already a child of God only by His grace, but now as a child of God, by His grace, I want to do the right thing. Work out my salvation. But I know, in the end, it is God who is at work in me, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Sovereignly overseeing my sanctification, even though I've got to do something in the process, and I've got to leave the two alone. I don't know exactly how it works. So you can't say, in some sort of fatalistic way, oh yeah, I believe in the sovereignty of God. Just do whatever I want to do because it's all up to fate anyway. People do that. They get a hold of this and they don't look at it in the context of the Bible and somehow it's leading to fatalism. It's never the way it's presented in the Bible. It's typically in the context of encouraging, motivating, causing us to want to praise God. That's the context. This is tremendously motivating for us. God is sovereign even in my sanctification, so I'm going to give Him praise as a result. Let's end with some application. Now, here's what I would like to think as a pastor. What I would like to think as a pastor, if we could have exit interviews today, I don't mean because you're leaving the church as a result of this, but that could happen. It wouldn't be the first time. And quite frankly, if, this is, if there's anything that would cause somebody to want to leave a church, it's this kind of stuff. And I think that just shows what a tragedy it is that we don't ever talk about the sovereignty of God. It's as if it was never in the Bible. But that's just a tangent that I gave you for free. But if we did exit interviews today, I hope, and I mean little kids all the way through you older kids who are retired, I hope we could sit down and have a chat and, and I could say, how is this applicable in your life? And you could say to me, how is this applicable in your life? Give me some real, tangible, practical ways that it is. And my guess is, most of you could give some really good answers in, unless you've been napping this morning. If you just take time to think about it, if God is sovereign over everything, not morally responsible for sin, you could say, well, here are some bad things that have happened to me. And they've really hurt me. And there are people who are morally responsible for doing that to me. And it's been really hard on me. But I've been reminded today that God loves me so much as His child that He has been superintending and working somehow to work out that, work that out for my good. Isn't that good? That's the best balm for your hurt that I know of. Instead of walking away from the Bible and its take on the bad things and saying, how could a loving God ever allow this to happen? Certainly He's not in control. You can have that spin on religion. I'm believing in a God who is so big and powerful, He will hold people accountable, yes, but He can use it for good in my life. We could have discussions about parenting. We could have discussions about your boss, your employees. We could have discussions, how about this? This would be a big one, about your children. I mean, how about you name it? And in one way or another, legitimately so, 
it could lead into praising God because He's a sovereign God. We can trust Him. This is great. So I'm hesitant to give you any application, specific application. We believe in the sovereignty of God in our evangelism, so what do we do? We preach the gospel and leave the results to God because as many have been appointed unto eternal life, we'll believe. So we don't do manipulation. How about our sanctification responsibility? Well, we pursue uh, this working out our salvation with fear and trembling, but we know God is overseeing all of that. In our political concerns, we don't worry. We vote and we're responsible citizens, but we trust God at the end of the day. Our attitude should be an attitude of praise. Habakkuk, you could read the book of Habakkuk sometime, and Habakkuk was somebody who had to grapple with this issue of the sovereignty of God and bad things happening. Well, by the grace of God, he came to understand it at least to a certain degree. And how can these bad things be happening? And God is sovereign, and, and he ends up embracing the reality of the sovereignty of God. And listen to what he says. Habakkuk 3.19, The Lord God is my strength. The NIV says it better, at least for this sermon. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. Folks, that should be our testimony. But Habakkuk couldn't say something like that, and you can't say something like that unless you've done some of the work of reading the Bible from Genesis onward and filling your mind with the data that says God is sovereign, God is sovereign, God is sovereign, God is sovereign. He does whatever He wants. He does whatever He wants. He does whatever He wants. He's in charge. He does it for my good. He does it for my good. You fill your mind with that data and then you can say with that prophet. Praise be to the Sovereign Lord. That's my goal. That's my goal for my life. That's my goal for you. That's my goal for for as many people as I can talk to about the sovereignty of God. That we would embrace the sovereignty of God and have our testimony be amidst the high times and the low times and everything in between because they will all come The Lord is my strength. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. Habakkuk 3.19 Have I said that I love to talk about this? Listen to what the former vice president of the Navigators, Jerry Bridges, said in his very helpful book called Trusting God. I like that book. I give that book away. I like to recommend that book because it doesn't use real loaded language that's controversial language. If there is a single event in all of the universe that can occur outside of God's sovereign control, then we cannot trust Him. His love may be infinite, but if His power is limited and His purpose can be thwarted, we cannot trust Him. And I wish Jerry Bridges, the kind little old man, were standing right here and could say it to you himself, because you might be more apt to believe him. He's right. I can give a final warning. Please think long and hard about this matter with an open Bible and a prayerful heart before you write it off because it doesn't fit your theology. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I never would to say, who here doesn't believe this? Because... There's a text I'm going to read in Romans chapter 9 that would embarrass you too badly to do that to you in public. If you look at Romans 9, it's the boxing glove for all those who don't want to embrace the godness of God. If you don't want to embrace the godness of God, look out. But I suppose it's true that there's a time in all of our lives where we didn't want to embrace the godness of God and we've all been hit by the glove, even those of you who embrace it now. So, if you're about ready to get whacked upside the head, just join the club. Uh, We've all been there, even those of us who now embrace it. But it is serious business for you to think of God as if He were like you and for you to question God's sovereignty. Don't go there. Romans 9, verse 19 says, and it's in the context of a conversation about the sovereignty of God, dealing with individuals as well as with the nation. I believe both are involved in the greater context. 
Romans 9.19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? In other words, if God is sovereign, then we're not accountable. Nah, 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 nah. This is a snot-nosed kid here. Somebody who questions the sovereignty of God is a snot-nosed kid who thinks somehow they're smarter than God is. Well, look out for the left hand. It's coming. Brace yourself. Verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, old man, who answers back to God? One of my mentors in ministry said, in other words, shut up. Who are you? You're a human being. You're claiming self-sovereignty. You're claiming to be God. Are you crazy? That's what he's saying. Don't do it. Remember, as Christians, we're supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves. As my neighbor, stop! I'm loving you by saying, shut up. Put a gag order. Talking about God. This is ridiculous. Who are you to answer back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? How about that, kids? You go to, you go to pottery class in school and you, you, you make the pot. Did you make it the way you wanted to make it? They go down and they put it in the kiln. They heat it up. Tell me, how many of your pots talk back to you? How many said, I wish I were pink instead of blue? Yeah, that's pretty stupid, isn't it? It's about as stupid as us saying, well, God, if you're sovereign, then. It doesn't make any sense. To make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use. God does whatever He wants. He's sovereign. He's in charge. I was asked to speak at an evangelical institution not that long ago. And when I went, I had two Bibles in my sermon and I said, I've got a Bible in my sermon on the cross. It's not that controversial. The cross is controversial, but it's not that controversial. And I have a a sermon in my Bible on why bad things happen. And it talks about the sovereignty of God, although it doesn't emphasize it anything like this. And I asked, person in charge, which one would you like me to preach on? I said, I'm burdened that young people don't get this, so then when they go off to college and the professor says, how can a loving good God uh, allow evil in the world? And they, they go, because they don't have an answer. So any opportunity I have, I like to talk to young people about why bad things happen and it's tied to the fall and tied to sovereignty. Which one would you like me to do? And I was kind of hoping he would pick the cross. Really, I was hoping he'd do the other. And he said, no, talk about why bad things happen. And, and I, didn't even, I didn't even get close to this. I didn't tell people to shut up. Okay, maybe I did. No, I don't think... It, it was all just... I, I behaved myself. But it created all kinds of uproar. And to the teacher's credit, he asked me to come back to the school and interact with his classes because they had such a problem with what I said in the chapel. And they submitted questions ahead of time. One of the questions was... I'm not saying this is true for everyone in the class. But one of the questions was, did you read this in a book somewhere or did you just make it up yourself? And I didn't think, I'd like to get a hold of that kid. No, I didn't think that. It really broke my heart. It broke my heart and it did make me think I'd like to get a hold of some of these kids' pastors and their parents. Folks, we need to teach our children the Bible, but it starts with us teaching ourselves the Bible. <laughs> if you're not growing, your kids aren't growing. Bottom line. You've got to know the Bible and you've got to teach your kids the Bible. Pastors need to be preaching the Bible. I don't believe my authority is based upon what other people have believed before me. It's based upon the Bible. You can prove anything with church history, quite frankly, anything. But knowing that that was a question... I led with this. I said, you know, somebody asked me this question. I'm thankful for the question. Good question. And I gave him a list. I said, I'll just name a few people who have held this view, this worldview in the past. 
I'll start with Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress, children's book, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, Charles Spurgeon, William Carey, Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, etc., 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 etc. This is, by and large, the, the Protestant view. What I presented to you. I thought I'd give him some, some contemporary names. R.C. Sproul. He's Presbyterian. Went for a Presbyterian. Oh, I could back up to the other list. And I told him, you know, George Whitfield. He, he, was, he was Anglican, but in, in America he worked with the Methodists. So we've got a Methodist covered having this worldview. R.C. Sproul, he's Presbyterian. Same worldview. This is not a denominational thing. John Piper, he's Baptist. John MacArthur, Independent. Al Mohler, Southern Baptist. Jerry Bridges, Parachurch Navigators. Joshua Harris, Kiss Dating Goodbye. I mean, popular Christian pop culture author. And I stop there. We need to be biblically literate. And it wouldn't even hurt to be historically literate. But it really seems like we're just making this thing up as we go. And I really am burdened. This isn't just for kids and you getting your kids ready. But I really am burdened that, that people don't have the answer to the question, why do bad things happen? Well, it just goes back to a bigger issue. We don't even know who God is. So thank you for letting me go over and rant and rave. But you know what? I really feel like I have my pastor's hat on today. This is a huge burden for me. Let's think rightly about God so He is glorified. And you know what? It really does matter in our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank You for today. Thank You for the study that we were able to do. We just thank You for You, that You are indeed a God who's in charge. And and, and it's not all up to bad luck or good luck or how it's going to all shake out in the end. Lord, You're in charge. You've already written the end. It's already a done deal. Everything in the end is yes, amen, and amen in Christ for those of us who believe in Him. Lord, may we just be fools for Christ, that we would tell others about Him and that we would be committed to doing that very thing. And Lord, may we not be lethargic. May we not be passive. May we be on a mission to boast in Your Son, the One that You had come to earth and You had live a perfect life and You had at the hands of godless men crucified on a cross for our sins so that we might be reconciled to Him. All according to Your sovereign, gracious, loving plan. Thank you for Omaha Bible Church. Thank you for the ministries you give us. May you just continue to impress us with the greatness of Christ. And may may it make a difference in this world for the glory of His name. Amen.